everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's discussion is about genes and IQ. So just to give you a brief background. So I've always been you know, very keen on this subject, which is, if not the most radioactive subject on planet Earth, probably one of the most radioactive subjects on planet Earth. And I was like, I'm not going to talk about this alone. So who can I find to talk about it? So here it is. Rajiv, thanks for coming on the podcast. What's up, everybody? All right, Rajiv, so let's begin over here. So because I think it's uh, because this is a very serious and sensitive issue. And uh, I think most probably, uh, well, you're canceled anyway. So I, I'm going to be joining the party of being canceled. <laughs> so uh, if, I, if I'm not canceled already, but I think it's only fair if we start today's subject by giving everyone a historical worldview of what this topic is all about. So can we start with a little bit of the history of this subject? And sure. then we, maybe if you could explain what it is all about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most of you guys know what educational testing is, uh, you know, testing is common across the world. Uh, it has a deep history in China. Um, more recently in the West, uh, standardized testing has been used actually in Britain. It was used to find working class kids that were talented, uh, but did not have educational resources, educational access, uh, in the United States, it has a more complicated history. Um, sometimes it privileged certain groups and sometimes it was used to, um, make other groups, uh, exclude them. So for example, uh, educational testing tended to do wonders for Jews in terms of their access to higher education, but, um, you know, it didn't do so, uh, it didn't privilege the wasps as much. And so they de-emphasized it for a while. Then they brought it back in the 1960s at places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and, you know, they unleashed, uh, they uncapped the Jewish quotas. And, um, you know, uh, one thing that I point out in, I think, I, I think it was in a Substack piece. Um, no, it's not, it's in a Quillette piece that'll be up soon uh, at Quillette uh, about a new book called The Aristocracy of Merit by Adrian Woolridge, an editor at The Economist. Um, George W. Bush went to Yale in 1954, but his brother went to University of Texas, Austin in 1971, Jeb. And Jeb is usually seen to be perceived to be smarter. So what happened there? Well, between 65 and 70, all of the Ivy Leagues eventually, I think like Harvard was first, but I think Dartmouth or Princeton was the last. They all switched to more meritocratic admissions, right? And so standardized testing is a part of meritocratic admissions. Um, in terms of the question of IQ intelligence quotient, uh, what really matters is what's called the general intelligence factor. Uh, this goes back to Spearman et al. in the early 20th century. And what they noticed is that there is a correlation factor across all of these tests. So like you have like a vocabulary test, a math test, a Raven's progressive matrix shape test. Um, you have a test about reading comprehension, analogies, et cetera. All of these tests exhibit a correlation. And that correlation is due to a common factor, the general intelligence factor. And um, the amount your general intelligence factor predicts the... Uh, outcome on a test is the G loading of that test. So for example, um, you know, like Raven's progressive matrices, which is like shape rotation and figuring out the next shape in this pattern as a highly G loaded test. It's also pretty culture fair because I mean, a square is a square, triangle is a triangle, octagon is an octagon, these sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, there's no perfect test to measure intelligence. But there's a bunch of different tests that can get to the underlying measurement, uh, which is biophysical. It's in the brain. Um, there's some suggestive evidence of like you know differences in uh, uh, the glial cells and uh, the neurons and, and all these other things and in, in the neuroscience aspect of it. But it's pretty woolly at this point. They haven't really figured it out. But when it comes to the testing, uh, they are pretty good at that. And um, you know educational testing services in the United States. Uh, it's a huge industry. Um, obviously, there's high stakes testing in East Asia and India, you know, national exams. So um, this is part of our modern world. And the patterns that we see around us uh, are very important uh, in terms of like different groups performing differently. Um, you know, how many educational resources do you need to hit a certain level of competency? Like how fair is that? So there's a scientific aspect. And then there's a the normative, political, social, ethical aspect. All right. So 
if now if i was to get into the history of intelligence which is iq uh, which is based on this broad rubric of different kinds of tests that we have come up with now how does it then get into um, having a direct connection with a different sets of people and when i say different sets of people i don't necessarily mean uh, just the racial basis i know different sets of people could be based on gender although these days nowadays gender is also a social construct so i don't know where to begin but but it is what it is but so let's say you know how we start in 1969 with arthur jensen right so mm-hmm. if i remember correctly arthur jensen wrote in the harvard educational review where he found uh, differences iq differences between x people obviously he, he was criticized a lot at that time so now mm-hmm. if we were to talk about this particular industry itself which which uh, has caused a lot of furor obviously the most famous one being the book bell curve by charles murray and is the funny thing is charles murray co-authored that book and nobody talks about the other author every the, the entire ire it seems has been uh, reserved well, for charles murray i don't know for what reason well the other well the other author died right before the book came out yeah so so one of the reasons is that yeah <laughs> so if you, if you want to avoid the ire die <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately yeah it it, it 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 has come down to that but now so how do genetics come into play and before that can you also explain this this whole mapping of iq and wh- how how was the data calculated let's say, mm-hmm. what was arthur jensen suggesting in that sense mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jensen, what he was, so here's the issue. Um, different populations have had different um, outcomes on IQ tests. So uh, the black-white IQ gap um, on standardized tests, intelligence quotient, has traditionally been about a little under one standard deviation or a little below. Uh, so, for example, stylized fact is like, you know, the black IQ is 85. I think it's maybe 86 or 87 now. And the white IQ is like 100, Okay. And so that means that the average black American is like at the 15th to 20th percentile of the average white American. Um, And so, okay, so this gap is real. Um, This is just an empirical distribution. Uh, It's an empirical result. And uh, there's no controversy about that. Okay. Um, And the tests have predictive validity, which means that, you know, IQ tests are performed are predictive of GPA or predictive of various other abilities, you know, in life. So that's that's a fact. Now the question is, where does this come from? Um, what Jensen said in 1969 is most of the gap is probably genetic, uh, biological, and means you can't close the gap. Okay, now that was a controversial part, um, and you know this caused a huge furor at the time. Uh, Jensen is a very very eminent. I mean, he's he's he died, but um, recently, I mean, within the last ten years, maybe, yeah, within the last ten years. Um, I think 2012 he passed. Away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And but um so he worked in educational testing. Uh he worked in a school of education. And his last like 40 years, really his last 30 years, because the last 10 years he was not feeling very well and he wasn't really an active researcher. He was pretty isolated, um, pretty ostracized. On the other hand, um, there's a lot of psychologists and researchers that still agreed with him. Um, you know, in, in the 1994 during the bell curve controversy there was like a mainstream statement on intelligence testing and the black white iq gap and there's a lot of people that signed up in that many of them still alive still professors today and so um it was obviously a controversial topic jensen was accused of being a racist he was uh there were threats on him berkeley had to have a security detail from what i've heard um, i know people that knew jensen to be frank so i know for example that berkeley like got him a house kind of far outside the town at some point to isolate him during the 1970s because they were worried about radicals attacking him. Um, his lectures were disrupted. Um, you know, they had to, like, he and Sandra Scar, gave, uh, a researcher in Minnesota, gave a lecture and, like, they had to kind of, like, leave out the back door uh, because of physical threats. The 1970s were a volatile time politically, I mean, we think of today, but really the 70s were pretty volatile too. So, um, yeah, it's hugely controversial. And, uh, you know, Jensen's position, which Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein supported in the bell curve, you know, I mean, they were more equivocal, actually, in the bell curve. Um, But, I mean, I think more recently, Murray's been quite candid that, um, you know, he thinks that there's a substantial genetic component uh, and uh, to the gap. And this is just, like, not acceptable in American society today. 
you know i mean it was controversial in the late 1960s um but really it's not acceptable in american society today so that's where we are um there's an empirical fact of this distribution but um people just now believe uh that the the gap is due to racism systemic racism that's that is the acceptable uh answer not genetics and so that's how it is in terms of how it's related to uh, genetics we can talk about that that's a somewhat separate question uh because um you know genetics in Jensen's time for humans uh meant something different than today we didn't have genomic sequencing we didn't have genomes back then so basically what they would do is they would do something like look at the genetic correlation look at the correlation in a characteristic between twins and then look at siblings and then look at the difference and that difference is explaining to you how much of the variation is due to genes because twins identical twins are identical uh fraternal twins are 50 percent right and so if there's no difference between identical twins and fraternal twins then probably there's no genetic basis to the variation because these are genetically different and yet that they're the same now if you have a correlation and it's like you know the magnitude is like twice as great uh for identical twins as for you know siblings then like you know it's predominantly genetic probably because it's like they're twice as genetically related then now there's twice as great of a correlation right and so that's how they inferred stuff during jensen's um time they usually got um correlations heritabilities you know say like heritabilities of like 30 percent to 80 percent which basically means 30 to 80 percent of the variation is due to genetic variation now there are some radicals like leon Kamen in the 1970s who were just like it's probably not heritable at all it probably has nothing to do with genes like nobody would support that now uh now what we do is um, not only are there their behavior genetic studies like that uh there's genomic studies there's genomes so you look at genomes and you look at genetic variation within population and you correlate those variants to variation of the trait and so you can find specific genetic positions in the genome and use those genetic positions to make predictions to look at patterns and one thing that they found in educational attainment papers in the last 10 years which look at iq variation along with uh genetic variation uh educational attainment variation is that the genes that come up as being marked for variation in educational attainment are enriched in neurological pathways so if you if you did this sort of study and you found that a bunch of bone genes kept coming up for um educational attainment and iq you'd be like what's going on why are bone genes coming up right but that's not what happens what happens is there are genes that tend to be expressed in the brain that are coming up and so that gives these uh you know biologists the intuition that okay they're on the right pathway like if you're looking at like bone genes for height that makes sense if you're looking at um brain genes for um educational attainment and iq that makes sense and so uh you know they get you know pretty high they, they get some of the heritability um retrieved but the issue is i uh, you know basically there are like thousands of genetic positions in the genome that explain this variation so it's not like a single big gene or even like a dozen genes it's like very diffuse across the genome it's a quantitative trait and they've required sample sizes of millions and millions uh, to really discover this. Millions and millions of, of people with genome-wide data. So none of this would have been possible before 2010 at the earliest. Um, you couldn't even imagine it in the year 2000. Uh, so Jensen was so far ahead of his time um, that it's like a whole different world, really. All right. So now, before I get into James Flynn, because James Flynn also had a lot of, you know, things to say about uh, the work of Jensen, because I think Flynn was critical of Jensen too, uh, alongside uh, Charles Murray. But now, so so where does Charles Murray come in and where does the bell curve come in? I, I, you know, what the irony is that the whole book only had just one chapter. It was not the centerpiece of the book, mm. if, if I remember correctly. But it's just that that chapter took over the whole book and the entire narrative was always about Charles Murray and the bell curve. So mm. if you could summarize, what was Charles Murray's point? Uh, yeah, I mean, so Murray and Hernstein's point was that IQ matters, intelligence matters, and, and that American society was stratifying along IQ lines due to the returns to skill and education that were occurring at the time, right? And so the bell curve is basically suggesting that there is like a intellectual overclass and an intellectual underclass, and that this is going to get worse and worse. And Murray's been pushing this line actually for 
the past 25 years uh you know he had his book coming apart which is only about white people lower class and upper class white people the sort of thing um so it wasn't mostly about race but they put a race chapter in there because it's kind of the elephant in the room and they wanted to put it in there and they said like you know it could be genetic like they were much more equivocal in 1994 um more equivocal than jensen so jensen was saying it's probably mostly genetic and there's a gap and that's what i that's what i want to you know focus on whereas uh murray was like not murray and hernstein were not super focused on the race aspect because that's uh just kind of a side effect or a secondary element to the class stratification that they really want to focus on all right now let's get into james flynn i um, mean for people who don't know who james flynn is uh, james mm-hmm. flynn was if i remember correctly from new zealand or Otago mm-hmm. was the place in New Zealand where he mm-hmm, was from. Mm-hmm. Then he later on obviously came to the United States of America and he is known for the famous Flynn effect, right? Where basically, if I was to summarize this Flynn effect and correct me if I'm wrong, basically what his claim is that every generation X number of points are added in the IQ. And what he uses to measure the IQ was a very specific thing. What was that thing called, which starts with a W or something? You mean the Weschler test? The yes, Weschler right? test? That, yeah, that's one of the yeah. it's one of the main tests. The Weschler, there's a bunch yeah. of tests, but that's what he used the Weschler test for consistency sake. So the Flynn effect basically indicates that um yeah, the IQ scores that need to be re-standardized all the time have been going up in absolute terms, if not relative terms, because the, the distribution is always the same, but the, the distribution is shifting. There's a lot of arguments about why the Flynn effect occurred. I think the most plausible argument is just modern life has reallocated our attention and our focus and our skills towards rational and abstraction because we're we're way smarter than we were 100 years ago supposedly um i don't think we're really way smarter i think we just have skills uh that iq tests are testing because very few of us work on the farm very few of us work outside most of a lot of us work in the office now a lot of us grow up with tv video games and a lot of books and other things and so i think that's what's happening there there's already evidence from Scandinavia that the Flynn effect has leveled off and maybe even declined um, over the last like you know 10 or 20 years, I think. So um, we might be at the end of that. Now, the Flynn effect is important because it shows that, well, IQ can change within populations. Um, and so, okay, well, maybe the black-white IQ gap, for example, is just due to that uh, in terms of you know Flynn effect. And if the Flynn effect can continue for black people that can catch up, the issue with, the, with that is both groups are way smarter than they were 100 years ago, but the gap has remained, right? So um, that's why the Flynn effect is not a panacea, you know. Now, one thing about Flynn that's different that got him in trouble is he did engage with those who disagreed with his view, people like you know, Charles Murray's not, he's a political scientist. He's not really like really involved in psychometric debates or maybe like with Jensen and Hans Eysenck and these people. And, you know, the woke thing today is you don't even talk to the people you disagree with. So that got him in trouble. Like he couldn't like write some of his last works before he died because they were like, didn't want to platform the opposing views. But just to summarize Flynn's criticism of uh, Murray specifically. So, and I'm directly reading a New Yorker summary of uh, Flynn's uh, criticism because I did not want to read it from his book. Otherwise it becomes very tedious. So, so basically, Flynn used to say the black-white gap differs dramatically by age. Uh, according to him, the tests we have for measuring the cognitive functioning of infants uh, are very crude, and they show the races to be almost the same. So by age four, for example, the average black IQ is 95.4, only four and a half points behind the average white IQ. Then the real gap emerges from age four through 24. Blacks lose six-tenths of a point a year until their scores settle at 83.4 so his basic point was pretty much that uh, the the statistical base that is used to make these claims by charles murray if i remember because i've read flynn's book a long time ago was that the statistical base was not really accurate right that's what he was in, uh, basically trying to say well i mean i think flynn's point is that iq is more plastic than murray would imply now I, you know i would say in charles defense uh, uh iq tests a lot of these tests are not very they're very noisy and not very accurate when kids are little uh, because uh, so, you know, IQ, a lot of behavioral characteristics become more heritable as you get older because you select particular environments and there's positive correlation between your genetic disposition and the environment. And so um, it's just a common reality that um, 
you know, when you're like measuring IQ for like two or three-year-olds, uh, it's, it's not very precise. It's not very accurate. There's a lot of variation. And if you increase the variation, then the, the, the you know, the gaps are just going to shrink because noise is going to be a big deal. And so, um, I think that that would be Charles Murray's response. I mean, that would, frankly, that would be my response. Like, I, I understand what Flynn is saying and it's a logical point, but, um, I do think like, you know, we've seen from like, say, preschool studies and other things, ultimately what you see in preschool studies uh, with test scores and academic performance is there's an initial like not much of a gap and the gap just grows and grows uh, until you hit adulthood, until you hit 18. And, um, you know, I think that the re reality of why that gap keeps growing is there's initial dispositions and those just end up expressing themselves, even if um, you know, you can give it a, a rich environment, uh, to a young person, uh, you know, if, if they're not academically oriented, they're not going to seek that enrichment out over their development, you know? So unless you can like force them to do that, you're probably going to have issues, uh, over the long term. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, there is a reason why I'm doing all this, you know, for all the listeners or viewers who are going to be watching this, who are watching this now or are going to be listening to this later. I just want to make sure that all the key players in this entire discussion who are known, at least in the public sphere, I mean, whatever little I can do, I'm trying to explain all of it to you. So you guys must be wondering, you know, what the hell is happening? Why is he talking about each individual individually? It's because I think these are very important players in the field. They have made some valid points and they have made interesting points. And I just want to make sure that everything is put on the table. And we have Razib who understands the source material very well. So Razib can explain. So now, Razib, I want to go into another interesting book that I had read about this. This was written, uh, this was called Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. This was written by Robert Plowman. Now, when I read this book, so I read Belkov and I read Flynn. When I read Plowman, I just got totally confused. I have to admit, I I, I got so confused. It was not as if I was confused already. I mean, Plowman made me even more confused because his whole point is that if I was to say literally, he says, yes, heritability accounts to 50% of the psycho psychological differences between us from personality to mental abilities, right? That's exactly what the Plowman claim is. But in spite of that, he disagrees with all the claims Murray makes. Well, so, I mean, from what I remember, Blueprint, most of his research is on white people because a lot of it's, he's at, in England at UCL. And so, um, you know, a lot of the work that Plowman has, a lot of the data he has is on whites. And so, um, I mean, I, I don't know if like Robert's taking like a, if he's taking like a really strong stance on, on the uh, black, white IQ stuff. Uh, but, um, you know, he's really focused on variation and prediction and heritability. And, um, you know, he's talked about his own background in the book, too. Uh, he comes from kind of a non-college working class background. And his standardized tests kind of opened up the doors uh, to a world of academia and higher education that he otherwise wouldn't have had access to, you know. And so I think that's what his passion is, using these tests, uh, using the genetic information that we have to, uh, you know, make, make decisions that allow people to have opportunities. That's his focus. Whereas, like, I, I guess Charles Murray would just say, like, uh, there are certain inequalities you can't change. That's his focus, right? So, so there were two interesting points that came off in Plowman's works. He's like, okay, 50% of it, it is the environment. But to those people who deny the genetic variant in it completely, his answer always is that what if I control for all the environmental conditions? And once I have successfully controlled all the environmental factors, and if differences are still emerging after that, what are you going to put it on? That has to be on the genetics, right? That was one mm. of the key factors that Plowman makes, right? Yeah, I mean, that's true. Although I do have to say, even when you control for environment, there's going to be random developmental stuff, right? Uh, just noise. Like, this is a common thing in biology where people, like, for example, like, see elegans or mice. You, you have these controlled laboratory environments, and you still can't get 100% heritability uh, because there's just random stuff that happens. So I think, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to be careful about that. But yeah. Um, I think Plowman's idea is as we have equality and opportunity, the variation you see around you is going to be more genetic. Uh, because, you know, in pre-modern societies where, say, like, you know, well-off people got more to eat, they got more enrichment, the difference is going to be amplified by the, you know, association between genes and environment, uh, in particular the richer environment that elite people get. 
Um, whereas in a modern environment where there's enough food for everybody, the difference in height, the difference in intelligence is going to be more genetic. So height, for example, is much more heritable in developed societies than in poor societies, because in poor societies, there are still people who are short because they're malnourished. That's not true in any, any developed society. You know, on the contrary, we have issues with obesity, right? So, so just build on this. So basically what you're talking about is the classic problem of group differences and individual differences, right? That's what you're talking about. Yeah, employment's focused on individual differences by far. Uh, he wants to identify really bright children through these uh, polygenic risk uh, assessments, risk scores. And, uh, you know, that that's his focus, right? He, does, he doesn't want to, like, get distracted by the race stuff. I mean, he's, he lives in England. I mean, he's American, but he lives in England. Like, it's just not a big... It's not a big concern there. Here, it's a huge concern. So another thing that he points out is, and I want to be very accurate when I say this, is that that he says that environmentalists have, you know, always made this fallacy where they say, show me that one particular gene that causes mm -hmm. X or Y problem. And he says it is not one gene. It is actually an interplay of multiple genes. And when those mm -hmm. multiple genes come into uh, the environment and it is the interplay between those two things that come out. I clearly remember, in fact, in the latter half of his book, he comes, he clearly comes from a place of genuine concern. His his worldview is actually out of concern that he says that if these are real, these problems are real, and we're just ignoring them because we have the boogeyman or the monster on top of our brains of you know social Darwinism and what has happened in, in the human race's past. And, and by the way, those are real concerns. And in fact, I would say I am one of those people who has those real concerns myself, which is why I get very scared whenever this topic is discussed. But the point is that if there is this evidence that look, it is not just one gene, it is multiple genes and they have this interplay with the environment and the more societies become, say, environmentally homogenous and if we have these differences, we're just doing grave injustice to these people, right? It, that's what he was trying to hint at. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think Robert Pullman wants there to be opportunity and he wants everyone's genetic potential to be realized, okay? And so that's why he's focused on genes because you can't realize people's genetic potential until you know their genetics, you know, so a lot of people think like, oh, you know, genetics is going to be deterministic. It's going to, you know, foster inequality. But he thinks that, you know, there are some people who are destined to do certain things maybe by their genetics and they shouldn't fight it. They should embrace it. You know, if you're genetically predicted to be an academic, go be an academic. If you're genetically predicted to be an athlete, go do athletics. You know, um, you know, there are heritable things and, uh, you know, Look, if, if you know someone who's seven feet tall, you're like, okay, yeah, play basketball, you know, with intelligence, like there's not something like that, you know, like you can't like look at someone and be like, they're super bright. You, you don't necessarily know. You got to see their marks. You got to do all these things. You got to take, you know, tests. But Plumman's attitude is like, if you're super bright, go do math and become a professor, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I, I think that's his focus. Whereas like Charles, uh, Charles is like saying, um, you know, from the bell curve and now facing reality is most recent book that there are differences between groups and we just need to face it up, face up to it. And we're not going to get rid of it necessarily. So that's, that's a difference. All right. Now let's get into the latest book. Uh, full disclosure. I have not read this book. I've just heard the author on podcasts. I've obviously read uh, your review on your Substack. Mm -hmm. So can you explain for, you know, also, I want you to talk about polygen, polygenic testing too. Uh, mm -hmm. That's something that also came up while I was reading a lot about this. But now mm -hmm. let us get into Catherine Page Harden and her book, uh, which was uh, The Generic Lottery. So yeah. could you explain what she has come up with? Because she's also now under fire, if I was to say. Yeah, I mean, it's because they're communists going to be communists. But um, so Page is like a pretty left-wing person. I kind of know her personally here in Austin, Texas. Uh, but she's a behavior geneticist and, you know, basically her book is, book's thesis is if you're a progressive, you need to take reality into account. And one of these realities is genetic differences. And so people should be allowed to flourish and you need to understand genetic differences to understand how they can flourish. And some kids are going to do well in school and some kids are going to do badly in school. And that's going to be partly due to their innate makeups, right? And that's okay. Um, you know, she's a believer in Rawls's difference principle that the, to whom much is given, much will be asked. 
and to whom little is given, you know, much will be given in terms of like redistribution throughout society. So she has a very progressive egalitarian redistributionist vision, and she wants like heritability and genetic differences to inform that in some way, just like differences in wealth inform it, you know, like you tax the people who have wealth. Similarly, if you got lucky genetically and you're very bright, um, we shouldn't act like you're just working hard. You're just very bright and maybe you should get taxed for that. Who knows? Like, I don't agree with her politics. So like, I, I have a hard time like uh, making her argument for her. I agree most, like pretty much 95% with her science, which just reports the standard things related to heritability estimates of very behavioral characteristics, including intelligence. All right. Now, uh, obviously the latter half, I want to keep with the philosophical problems with this point of view, but there's something that I came across, uh, Wilfred Riley. I mean, I think people know about him. He's a quant science, quant guy. He looks at data analysis. Uh, you know, he, he does a lot of data analysis. He's been on the podcast, your podcast, my podcast. He's been, he wrote this interesting book, Taboo. And I want to read just one page. So bear with me, Razib. Um, so let's start. You know, he, I'm going to read a couple of pages. Um he says, um, and I'm literally just going to read off his page so that you get a fair idea. So he says in his book, this is chapter three, I think around page 87. I don't remember the exact page, but uh, in their useful resource, the black-white test score gap, authors Chris Jenks and Meredith Phillips note another intriguing detail about generally high multiracial IQ performance. They point out citing work by Lee Willerman that mixed race children raised by a Caucasian mother score a full 11 points higher on standard IQ boards than multiracial children raised by a black mother. As the black-white IQ gap has been pegged at 15 points for much of the modern era, this finding indicates that virtually the entire gap can be traced directly to, in quotes, family-related factors, such as the amount of intensive study time spent with children, number of books in the home, and neighborhood safety. More simply put, adjusting for the one factor of custodial penetrace in quotes eliminated 80 to 90 percent of the gap while perhaps easy to misinterpret this is again a purely culturalist result there is no feasible genetic explanation for why almost all black children raised in situation x in brackets he says that is attentive white mom uh, which pick up specific skills use them to boost their average iq by one standard deviation and pass most of them onto their children while a genetically identical population of black children raised in situation Y, the herd, would not do so. Another powerful piece of evidence for the thesis that racial differences in IQ are largely culturally or socially determined is the fact that black women do much better than black men on all standard intelligence tests. Seoul has studied this phenomenon as well, noting in a 2002 Jewish World Review piece that females predominate among high IQ blacks one study of blacks whose IQs were 140 and up found that there were more than five times as many females as males at these levels. This disparity is reflected perhaps unavoidably in contemporary higher education. The summer 2018 issue of the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education pointed out bluntly that black women hold, in quotes, a large lead over black men in almost every field of higher education. As the journal notes, black women currently earn around 65% of all BA and BS degrees earned by African-Americans, 70% of all master's degrees, and 60% of all PhD degrees and other doctorates. Even with all the male firemen and cops auditing a course or two thrown in, black women also dominate university enrollment, making up 63.6% of all African-American university enrollments at no less than 23 of the 26 elite universities to respond to an itemized questionnaire from the journal Black Women Outnumbered Black Men. So what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot. Um, so the mixed race stuff, like, I know some of those studies, um, they tend to be overemphasized, to be entirely frank, because people want them to be representative of everything. Um, so it's not actually true that they're necessarily even going to be genetically alike. Um, you don't know if there's, uh, cause they could be racially genetically alike, but there's other things. There's inter, in, there's individual variation in IQ. Um, who, like what type of mixed race children are like, what kind of like black women are with white men and what kind of black men are with white women that they could be somewhat different. Like that's one thing. I don't actually think that that's the major issue. Um, one of the implicit ideas there is like white women are magic, 
you know, like white mothers are magical somehow. I, I just don't believe that. Um, so we have a lot of mixed race people in the United States at this point. Uh, we don't need to rely on just a few tests. Uh, if um, there was this consistent pattern, um, there's relatively easy ways to check for it. And I don't believe that it's been validated. In the Pacific Northwest, for example, uh, the majority of black children up until relatively recently, I haven't looked in the last census, uh, have white mothers. So you would just see that those black children uh, would have the IQs of white people then, you know, and my understanding is they don't. So um, I think that that one study is not dispositive. Um, in terms of the sex difference, that is a real thing. Um, I don't think looking at the tails are necessarily informative because so many black men are in, say, um, you know, criminal justice system, these sorts of things. Obviously, that causes a distortion. Um, and I think that there is a plausible culturalist effect there. But um, again, like, you know, uh, black, black, uh, um, you know, school, a lot of schools in inner city areas get as much funding as in suburban areas. And it's just it doesn't have an effect. Now, I will say, uh, Journal of uh, Blacks in Higher Education, um, here is a uh, the widening racial scoring gap on the SAT college admissions test. Uh, this is an older piece, but like um, I want to like just read something off so that people understand. Sure. Uh, uh, whites from families with incomes of less than ten thousand dollars had a mean SAT score of nine nine three. So ten thousand dollars is not that much. Um, this is from like twenty years ago, so that's why the the numbers are weird. But um, this is 129 points higher than the national mean for all Blacks. Blacks from incomes of more than $100,000 had a mean SAT score that was 85 points below the mean score of whites from all income levels, okay? And uh, so it, they had SAT scores that were 139 points below the mean score of whites from the same income level. Uh, the point here is, uh, you know, Blacks from the highest income bracket have slightly higher SAT scores from than whites from the lowest income bracket, slightly. Um, so the, these sorts of culturalist arguments about income and whatnot, um, they don't they don't explain like the whole gap. Um, I mean, they're not definitive. Just like um, you know the I for you know like these adoptions of like you know there's like a, there's like a famous study of like German white German women that had children with black GIs and their IQs were the same as similar, um, you know, German women that had children with white GIs. And I, I mean, that seems to be a valid study, but that doesn't mean that it's uh, explains everything. Like, like these studies are noisy. They have various confounds. And so we have this gap and we have a lot of different patterns and you got to make a judgment about what you want to weigh. Um, it's not impossible, obviously, that the gap is uh, uh, all environmental, but um, I think society really, really wants it to be all environmental for obvious reasons, you know? Okay, one more thing that I wanted to read out for you, was again, from his book was, so he again makes this point, I, I, maybe, I don't know, this could be a response to what you've just said. So he says, more evidence for the non-biological nature of the black to white IQ gap is provided by the performance of black immigrants as... Uh, Chanda Chisala noted in a heavily quantitative piece published by, of all places, the far-right UNZ review, black immigrants to Western nations generally perform at roughly the same level as whites. In Britain, for example, the average verbal reasoning IQ score is uh, 100.8 for Britons of mixed black and Western African descent, 98.6% for Britons of mixed Caribbean descent, 95 for immigrant blacks, black uh, in quotes, black other slash overall and 93.5 for Caribbean people. In contrast, British whites overall post 101, but Irish traveler scores and score an average 84.6. Roma gypsies come in at 86, and even plain old whites, other, in quotes, record a 99. So I mean, the African immigrant stuff is like, that's I mean, like Indian Americans, like 60% have advanced degrees in the United States. They're not representative of Indians. Like one percent of Indian Americans are Dalits, twenty-five percent are Brahmins. That's not representative of India. The African immigrants mm -hmm. are not representative of Africa. That's, I mean, to be frank, like that's ridiculous. Uh, that, that that's a ridiculous uh, counterpoint. It doesn't mean, I mean, like you know, just because there's a gap doesn't mean that there's not intelligent people in, among a billion people, right? Like you can find plenty of them. 
and um, their intelligence is going to be partly heritable. They'll transmit it to their children. And so if you have a strong immigration selection regime uh, where you filter on education, you filter on conscientiousness, you filter on intelligence, uh, you're going to create a subpopulation that's like that. So Indian Americans in the United States uh, are the most educated, um, looking at IQ, IQ tests, like as smart as Ashkenazi Jews, perhaps even smarter, uh, looking at digit ratio stuff. But that doesn't mean Indians are like, you know, way higher IQ than white people. It's just everyone knows you're selecting for a subpopulation. Similarly, uh, from African immigrants, like you're selecting from the elites who are going through these educational hoops and hurdles. And so that's not representative. So I, I think that that's frankly much weaker than the adoption study because you know exactly why those populations do well in Britain because Britain is selecting not for random African peasants, but for university educated people from places like Nigeria who are very, very, very elite. So, so again, but their elite status, would that be a genetic point or an environmental point? Could be both. How? Could be both. I mean, aren't I, they genetically similar, all of them? No, because no, but, you know, white people have variation in intelligence too. So like, like race and IQ are not the same. Like you have heritable variation in all groups. Like some Indians, some Punjabis are tall, some Punjabis are short. That's genetic. They're all Punjabi, right? So similarly, some Africans have high IQ, some Africans have low IQs. They're all African. They're all Igbo. They're all Yoruba. You know, like there's variation within populations in terms of quantitative trait. That doesn't mean that there's any ancestry variation. So all Irish people are Irish. Okay. White Irish people are genetically very homogenous in terms of their ancestry. Right. But within an ancestry group, there's still variation across siblings. Uh, there's still variation in IQ and that's heritable variation. So you can actually look at um, the recent genomic work and you can actually predict sibling IQs from the genome, the genomes and the predictions work. Like some siblings have different IQs, not for random reasons, but because they have different genes, right? Does that make sense? So you can have like mm -hmm. a distribution of a population and you select from one end of the distribution. That doesn't mean it's representative of the rest of the population in that quantitative trait, right? So I think like that's, that's, that's frankly just like a really weak argument from Wilford. Um, the earlier argument was stronger, uh, to be frank, because there's no selection there necessarily. You have to like make arguments about compounds and stuff like that. Right? All right. Now, now I want to get into the subject where, uh, which is there. I don't know. I mean, I've always been kind of confused about this. And this is more of a moral, ethical, philosophical question, <laughs> not about the science. I think we spent around 40 minutes talking about the different scientific data, the criticisms, everything that I could gather. I tried my best to do whatever I can. And if I have failed, I have failed. I mean, it is what it is. But uh, a lot of times people are rather come up with this question that why even discuss this? Because uh, there is this... Uh, social Darwinist past of the human race where whether we like it or not a lot of cultures with most recently the the Germans and the Nazis using all sorts of weird things and obviously America also has that past of you know law making a lot of these hereditarianism based arguments um uh, India has its own issues where it creates another subcategory which I don't even want to get into because I don't want to go to jail in India uh <laughs> It's as simple as that, which is why I'm going to stay away from it. But like, where? So my question to you is, where does one draw the line? Then I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, it should science not be studying like somebody? Let's say uh, Catherine Harden comes it from a completely social justice worldview. She's like, look, this is a real problem. We need to fix this, and we need to do something in a social justice perspective, wherein you know the the state comes in and the state tries to fix this problem because it is scientifically. Uh, fixed and uh, then but so so should we be even be bothered about this is my first question um i mean it depends i mean some people put moral ethical value on intelligence um you know and so you know that, that, that's why they're bothered i mean science is science like i'm pretty old school about that but i'm also in the minority nobody really cares about that anymore uh, most people are interested in ideology and propaganda, and so they're going to control the means of information production, generation, and consumption, and they're going to create distorted lies uh, based on what they want you to believe. Um, if you want to like uh, scratch below the surface, if you want to like get beneath that, you got to work hard. That is a fundamental reality. 
Um, you know, for example, the Germans, they didn't actually like IQ tests. You know why? Ashkenazi Jews really do really well on IQ tests. So it's not as simple as people like to say, right? Uh, IQ tests uh, benefited certain groups that people didn't want them to benefit, so they were against them. Um, the Germans were not were not worried <laughs> that, I mean, they said the Jews were inferior, but like uh, they were kicking them out of universities. They were like repossessing their businesses. Uh, for an inferior people, they're doing sure well. They're doing pretty well. Um, the German German anger, the Nazi anger against the Jews is not because the Jews were on welfare. It's because the Jews were running things. Okay, so um, you know these sorts of things are get a little confused. Obviously, you know uh, people use group differences to make uh, you know in, in implications about individuals. That's unjust, but it's also human nature. So uh, you know uh, if it turns out that there is a biological genetic basis between some of these differences. Many people say you should lie about it. And, uh, you know, that, that is a, that is a perspective, you know, noble lies, uh, you know, uh, I'm not like a very happy about that personally, but you know, I don't run the world. Uh, I think noble lies are probably where we're going to go. Uh, there's gonna be a small number of people that know the truth and everybody else will know the lie. And, uh, that's the way the world is. Right? So that's just my assessment. So, I mean, like, I'm trying to tell the truth here. I'm not, I'm not trying to lie, but most of you will read lies and you will accept the lies because you won't look any deeper. That's my opinion. Yeah. So, but that's the problem, right? Sometimes. So maybe it's not a problem though. So you're, yeah. uh, I don't know. Uh, so again, this is a very valid philosophical thing, right? I think I, I clearly remember uh, Sam Harris talking about this in his book, uh, about lying itself, right? I mean, I, I, it takes me back to that experiment, right? If you are, so, you know, that is the, the Kantian worldview, right? Uh, or or the other worldview in a situation. The utilitarian, like yeah. The, so you have the Kantian deontological worldview where you have like certain duties uh, invariant of what the outcome is and the utilitarian worldview. You know, a lot of people have privately told me, yeah, I think that there's group differences in IQ that are due to genes, but we just need to lie about it. And they think that that's better for the world. So maybe it is. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the thing. People have told me that. A lot of people have told me that. So, but now with the genie out of the bottle, look, these books. Nah, are no, there. no, no. There, there's no genie out of the bottle. It doesn't. Science doesn't matter. Like scientists will lie to your face. They will. They will. If, if there's enough pressure, they'll lie to your face. Like these are not men of courage anymore. So, <laughs> this these are not Galileo. Trust me. Um, they're bureaucrats. They will lie to your face. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they have I mean, lied to I, your I face. saw, yeah, no, I saw that during COVID. I mean, to be very honest, when, you know, A type of protest was not going to socially transmit COVID and B type of protest was going to transmit COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're, you, uh, you, you know, what the, you know, you know, the courage that they have, which is none. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is, this is the modern world. Welcome. You're wel wel welcome to the Kali Yuga, right? <laughs> um, the scientists are the priests of the truth, but they're actually the promoters of propaganda quite often. Like, I'm being very cynical here. And like, they're not like that, obviously, when it comes to structural engineering and other things that are socially. But if it's anything socially controversial, scientists will bow down in general uh, before the social consensus because they are you know, professionals uh, who are of the elite caste. And so therefore, they will uh, accept what the establishment wants them to say, and they will say it. Um, you know, I know people personally who just like straight up lied to many people, although privately they have totally different views and they just, they're like, what am I supposed to do? I want my job, you know, that's what they're in it for. So they're in it for their job. And you, I mean, like I've, I've been, you know, I've been attacked a lot personally. A lot of people can't take that, you know, like my life, yeah, I can vouch my, for that. My, my, my wife would be, my life would be easier if I lied all the time. So why don't I lie? I'm probably insane. <laughs> No, nah, you mean well, man. You mean well, but but then don't you see any merit in the social justice worldview that 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 could actually, if if this is the reality, Razib, and you know there is this gap, and you know whatever reasons there are, don't you see actually a good social justice argument that we need to yeah, do something I'm, for those people? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, like uh, in terms of a noble lie, I'd rather people just convert to some religion. And then everything can be well organized. The religions are pretty like well organized institutions, and uh, that's probably like for me that you know as a conservative, that's what I would say. Like I'm an atheist, so I don't think religions are true. But if we're gonna lie, like let's let's get a good functional complex lie that has a lot of uh, history behind it instead of like this uh, communist stuff. 
Because like when you say social justice, like what is that? Like, I mean, yeah, there's Catholic social justice, but really a lot of times it's turned into communism. Like Lysenkoism was a thing. Like, you know, everyone out there should Google that. Um, they should look at the famines of the Soviet Union. They should look at the Holodomor. Uh, they should look at the tens of millions of people who died during the Great Leap Forward in China. Um, there's, there's, there's plenty of uh, well-meaning people there uh, that caused tens of millions of people to die in the 20th century. So, uh, you know, I mean, social justice, people are self-righteous. They think that they're doing right uh, as they're putting people in cages, re-educating people, making people mouth lies. Like that's, that's what social justice has been in the past. It is what social justice is today. Like, why should we, why should we talk about these sorts of things? Well, it's because if there is a gap, they say it's because of racism, because of white supremacy. What if it's not? What if that's all a lie? You know, um, like there are 20% of the Nobel prize winners in this world are Ashkenazi Jews. Why? Is that a conspiracy? Is that a conspiracy by the Jews? Or is it they're just smart? You know, I think they're just smart. Honestly, I don't think it's a conspiracy. But like, if you care about these sorts of like, if you're an Ibrahim Kendi thinker, you have to like wonder, hmm, they're less than 1% of the population, but they're 20% of the Nobel prize winners. How did that happen? Well, how did that happen? Like, if you believe in environment, how did that happen? Right? Are they? Are they? I guess they, they would it? come up with factors like the personal culture of hard work, uh, uh, focusing on academics, yeah, yeah. and then they will bring in the privilege. I although with the Jewish uh, Jews, they would have a problem because they oh. were literally wiped off by the yeah, Germans. I mean, oh, oh yeah, Jewish privilege. They were so privileged in the early twentieth century, right? I mean, this, I mean, this is the fundamental problem. Um, or uh, you know, uh, some of the some of these market dominant minority uh, minority groups that were like. You know, the Chinese still run the economy of Indonesia, but they were genocide in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, you, everybody knows the year of living dangerously. Like what happened after the fall of Sukarno and the rise of Suharto, hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered. Uh, there were riots in the 1990s. Like I went to someone, I went to grad school with someone who in the 2000s saw her neighbors being murdered when she was a little girl. She's Chinese Indonesian, you know? Um, there were there were riots in Jakarta at the time and her neighbors were killed, you know, in the streets. So there are people that have gone through a lot, and yet they still do well. I don't know. I mean, they, these these are confusing things. So, um, but as I said, uh, most people would prefer the uh, to just like say that it's nothing to do with innate differences, and I understand why. And uh, I don't personally like just like go along with stuff like that, but most people do, and so I think most people in the in the the regular population will accept that that's the truth because that's what people in power tell them because. That's how they get into power. They lie. Yeah. I mean, th this is our culture today. You know, we're not a culture with like ver um, here in the West. I don't know how it's in India. Uh, I don't think you're that different well, to be frank. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like people, people who get into power, they're not virtuous people. You know, they're conformists, they're liars. And so they'll, they'll lie to, to um, they're not going to tell you the hard truth. They're going to tell you what makes it easy for them. Yeah, I guess uh, that, but that's just the nature of uh, the game. I think politics does not incentivize being virtuous. Uh, politics incentivizes various. You know, politics is the art of convincing the maximum number of people who might end up making you sure, making sure you win. I think politics is uh, is a very different game. But Razib, let's take a few questions because this is one of those rare occasions where you are doing a live stream with me, which is the whole idea was that you know we can take a couple of questions here and there. So. Yep. All right. Somebody has asked, um, how much of an effect does delayed gratification or delayed discounting lead to higher IQ and other positive outcomes? Was it first noticed amongst white people? Uh, yeah, well, most of these studies have been done among white people. Um, there's some black people that are in the studies, but you want to like control for background effects like based often. Um, delayed gratification, time preference, these sorts of things. Usually the assumption is... Uh, um, stuff like the marshmallow test, they're actually the outcomes of intelligence, not intelligence the other way around. Although marshmallow test has been subject to some replication crisis issues. But um, the point is, uh, generally, the causality is assumed to be from intelligence to time preference rather than time preference uh, to intelligence. Right? Okay, now someone has asked, are myelin sheets thicknesses inherited or grown because it's a neurological thing, or could that also have some sort of effect on? I yeah, guess, my understanding. Yeah, my understanding is it does have an effect. I forget like the exact details here, and but it is heritable. Uh, a lot of the genes discovered in EDU attainment variation 
have to do with you know these neurological features so but i'm not a, a neuroscientist so I, I can't tell you off the top of my head all right okay i'm totally unaware of this but is walter michelle's marshmallow experiment verified uh, it, it's having some issues with replication yeah it wasn't there like some uh, meta-analysis where at least in the realm of psychology or more than 50 percent of uh, papers and published papers were not replicable in the field of psychology something of that yeah sort? social psychology in particular yeah yeah basically the stronger the effect the more likely it was to be a false positive probably yeah so okay this is more of i think a social philosophical question so someone has asked you if we choose the way of iq and genetics based career distribution does it make society too mechanical and then then they have a comment here they say also if we should expect more from people more disposed to be intelligent then would we also go you know should we not also give then some sort of doles uh, i think doles is the wrong word basically i think yeah. what they're suggesting is no, that that's, if that's, some, that's, basically yeah that's, that's page, yeah that's page harden's argument that like you know the classic marxist uh you know from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs this sort of thing john's rawls has a more liberal version of it but uh yeah this is like a, a standard point i think it's i think that's fair i mean this is not like even like a modern philosophical point like even in most ancient traditions uh the people who rule who lead uh you know who have privileges they're supposed to give back uh they're supposed to like show by example you know have rule a just society etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, but just to add to that, it's not like the, you know, the 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 opposite view to the Marxist does not believe in helping people out and some sort of social justice phenomenon. It's like if you listen to conservative thinkers and conservative speakers, they'll always say we just don't want the government to do it. We just want the church to do it or some sort of non-governmental organization bailing mm -hmm. people. It could be a secular NGO too, right? So let's yeah. say there is the scenario where people genuinely are lagging behind because of genetic differences. Now, if that is the case, either the government steps in or society steps in, right? So both cases, the only difference is which entity is stepping in. Sort of. I mean, I do think that if you're conservative, if you're more traditionalist, like you understand that hierarchy and inequality will continue. And even though in communist societies, inequality did actually continue, like dashas for the elites and whatnot, um, you know, there is social justice, communistic idea of like flat egalitarianism, right? I, I think flat egalitarianism, I don't think it's, it works. It's just not, doesn't work with human nature. So I think uh, conservatives, people on the right, like I think we are accepting that some inequality will persist. We just need to like shave off the hard edges or a lot of us believe we should shave off the hard edges unless you're like an Ayn Rand libertarian, you know. Uh, but whereas like, you know, on the progressive social justice side, they really, really want to flatten the distribution a lot to various degrees. Like if you're like a if you're a more conventional liberal, you still believe in capitalism, you know. But uh, if you're communist, I mean, a lot of the communists have traditionally wanted to like destroy a lot of um distinctions and differences and that causes problems with incentives in my opinion cool so a couple of more questions and, and bear with them these are young kids so they, their questions are stemming out of genuine curiosity i know this for a fact that they're not older than like 22 25 mm -hmm. a lot of these are young kids so someone has asked it is said that iq tests are not the best method to test one's intelligent what is your view on that i have no idea how you would test it better that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, how else would somebody come up? What what kind of scale would you do? I guess they are saying that, uh, you know, different skills uh, would come up in different ways. Like uh, intelligence is contextual, right? Uh, uh, a Papua New Guinea uh, wasn't this uh, the argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, but Jared Diamond, Jared Diamond, guns, jumps, and steel. Yeah, Jared yeah, Diamond's yeah, I mean, argument. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's like you know, I knew a kid like. His name was Justin. I'll use his real name because it's a common name. He was really athletic. He had a lot of like body intelligence and stuff like that. But like he was kind of dumb uh, in school. And like, I mean, so I'm dumb in body intelligence compared to, I mean, like, this is ridiculous. This is a ridiculous argument. We know what we mean by intelligent. Like, Justin wasn't intelligent. I'm intelligent. Okay. Like, to be entirely frank, I mean, uh, we're talking like paper and pencil. We're talking about like solving problems. Like, that's what we mean. Like you can use like different words if you want, but this is just semantic wordplay. Like it's not substantive. Hmm. But then, uh, 
but then i'm not intelligent in in the in the jungle of or or in the area say something where the the sen was you know the jarawa tribe stay stays or somewhere mm-hmm. of that time right would i be intelligent well there? i mean you're not raised you're not raised with the jarawa right but yeah i mean you're not raised you're not raised in that social context right but like i mean the argument would be general intelligence is general intelligence and maybe if you were raised with the jarawa you would be a better hunter i don't know uh but even aside from that uh like i said like lebron james obviously has some physical biophysical skills now is that kinesthetic kinesthetic intelligence i mean i think using intelligence is weird there i think like multiple intelligences a lot of times is just like can you just call it something else besides intelligences or call it cognitive capacity i don't know like maybe use a different word because like we're just like muddling things here okay like it's fine like every, people understand some people are more athletic and more coordinated you don't need to say that they're intelligent in different ways I mean, come on like you say they're right. athletic sure. you know Mm-hmm. Got it. So <laughs> I don't know what has the, this question got to do with anything, but I'll ask it. It's okay. It's a young kid. Is there any correlation between genes and fairness if all the environmental issues are neglected? Uh, yeah. I mean, you can you can predict skin color. I mean, they're Indian. Of course, they care about fairness, right? Uh, you can you can. Uh, I'm just saying. Like, he's probably like angry because he's Swedish. He's a Gala fella, you know. But uh, um, uh, <laughs> Let's keep it real, right? Uh, but yeah, you can predict eye color, hair color, skin color really easily. We actually have like a really good understanding for forensic purposes in the United States how to predict this. I can tell you, I predicted my kids' eye color with genes really well. Uh, it, everything is correct; it checks out. So there's not that many genes. There's like dozen genes that affect like a lot of these things. Pigmentation, maybe like fifty. Eye and hair color, like a dozen. Yeah, but yeah, um, I, I I just want to end your answer by saying the, this the polygen- podcast is not sponsored by Fair and Lovely. <laughs> yeah, the polygenic risk score is wheatish. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Razib, uh, I think uh, you know we've taken all the questions. Uh, uh, before we wrap today's podcast, you have any last words to say? Uh you know, just uh. Just be who you are, everybody. Like, don't don't try to be someone you're not. That's, I think that's 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 the that's the way to success by like you know, figuring out your own potentials, your own strengths, and then focusing on them. Like, if you're good with your hands, go be a carpenter. If you're you know good with your uh, visual spatial, go be an engineer. If you're good with words, go be a writer. I don't know. Just the, that that's the key by like testing. Uh, they want to like give you shortcuts to figure out what your best path is, and people have different best paths, you know. All we're right. all special. We're Guys, all special. Yeah, we're all special. Uh, say someone who does not believe that. <laughs> Yeah, so guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap up, I I think uh, it's only fair that I end by sharing my views. Look, this is a subject I was very. This is one of the rare times I was very, 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 very worried about whether I should discuss this or not. When I reached out to Razib, I told him that you know this is one issue I'm really you know. I'm confused whether I should talk about it or not. But then somewhere deep down inside in me, I was like, if I don't talk about it, I think I'm doing something incorrect. I should talk about it. We should talk about all the data available. I, I myself, uh, I mean, I, I know Razib does not agree with me, and that's fine. And, and you know, the world would be boring if we agreed on everything. I actually, I when I read Razib's own review of uh, Catherine Harden's book, I was like. maybe that is the solution i don't know some sort of quota situation where if the science and the data is real and if we have the situation where some people are just hard done by for for whatever reasons i mean we should try and fix the problem in whatever way possible uh, to our you know ability but then i really am not opposed to some sort of a, a situation where some sort of social justice um situation is created i myself i'm very libertarian in most of my leanings and i don't believe in government led solutions but i don't know what the world is because uh, is going to be ending up like but uh, and or maybe you know it might be one of those things that it's not that bigger deal at the end i don't know but if it is we should fix it but i also believe at the same time that we should not run away from talking about things because hiding from reality does not change reality most of the times it's not you know i just give you the analogy of lockdowns in india right we keep doing this damn thing and it doesn't work anyway so we're doing something <laughs> i mean i would have liked to see uh, you know our you know people in the bureaucracy politicians scientists medical community overall analyzing policy decisions but 
I guess the world right now is in an area where either we avoid things or if we do things, we do the only thing that is good for public optics and then we get over it. It is what it is. Uh, I, I, I won't say I was not worried about today's discussion, but I'm really grateful that, you know, Razib came on and he has explained the entire data. I've tried my best to explain all possible points that were there in this field. I would recommend all of you to go read all these books, whether it is Charles Murray, The Bell Curve, whether it is Robert Plum in Blueprint, James Flynn, I forgot the name of his book. He also wrote a very detailed book. I think it was in 1980s, if I don't remember the year. Also, correct. What is an intelligence like in the 2000s? Yes. Book? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that too. That too. Obviously, Catherine Harden's book is there. Then Wilfred Riley's book, Taboo, it uh, deals with this topic. It is chapter three where he talks about it. And there are other papers. You can go and read Arthur Jensen's work. And there are there are many other you know papers. You should also go and listen to the podcast that Razib has had on this subject on his Substack. Please go uh, and subscribe to his Substack. I think it's one of the best uh, uh, out there, I'm personally subscribed to Razib, and if you want to do that, you can go and uh, you know check check the description of the podcast, whether on YouTube or on Spotify, iTunes, whatever. You can go there. So we end today's discussion. Razib, as always, pleasure speaking to you, buddy. Yeah, for sure. Great talking to you, man. All right, guys, we end today's discussion. You know what to do. Please subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave your comments below. Support the Charvak podcast. Go again, go and subscribe to Razib's Substack too and become a member on my YouTube channel or on Patreon or you can buy the merch and send your donations through UPI. I'll see you next time. Until then, bye-bye. Take care.